Hello, everyone. Welcome to Independent Animation, brought to you by Squiggly Online Animation Magazine. I'm Ben Mitchell, Squiggly Managing Director and author of the tie-in book, Independent Animation, Directing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films. The aim for this series is to both expand on and supplement the material in the book, as well as hopefully being an insightful look into the ever-shifting landscape of contemporary independent animation in its own right. One of the chapters of the book deals with the somewhat daunting prospect of an independent feature film. Now, as with the definition of independent animation in general, independent features as an umbrella term spans a pretty large gamut of production circumstances or budgets, crew sizes, distribution potential. I've seen Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires, the bridge-end-produced stop-motion feature I contributed some VFX and post-production to last year, referred to as an independent film on more than a handful of occasions now that it's doing the rounds at festivals. Certainly, it was independent in spirit, and the degree to which the director, Mike Mort, was afforded his vision for the film to be realised but at the end of the day, it had a considerable budget, a significant percentage of which reportedly from one crucial investor. Some of you may have watched the BBC4 documentary Secrets of British Animation that went out recently and featured Chuck Steele among its own case studies. If you haven't, I recommend it. It should be on iPlayer for a little while longer if you're based in the UK. Now, being realistic... The circumstances that brought Chuck Steele to life is not a situation that comes around super often, so it's not necessarily the most viable case study for what I'm doing here. The films mentioned in my book were, comparatively speaking, easier to shoot for. These included two partially crowdfunded features with small crews, Cheatin' by Bill Plimpton and Rocks in My Pockets by Signe Bauman, as well as Nina Paley's exceptional Sita Sings the Blues, that had its own unique set of production circumstances. All of these directors have since made or are in the process of making follow-up features. We spoke with Bill about his recent films Hitler's Folly and Revengeance in episode 51 of the Squiggly Animation podcast, and with Signe Bauman about her in-progress film My Love Affair with Marriage in the first episode of season two of Intimate Animation. Nina Paley's new film Sadomasochism screened at Annecy recently to much enthusiasm from what I've been hearing about it. I'm extremely keen to see it at the first available opportunity. But for this episode, I'm going to be talking with some new animation talents who've taken the plunge, as these are artists with perceivably less immediate visibility or an established following than the three in the book. And as such, their experience might be more representative of if, say, someone like myself, or perhaps some of you folks listening, wanted to make their own long-form indie film. And I'm not going to lie, it is something I've given serious thought toward. So getting to speak to these people really shone a light on just what kind of a commitment this type of project warrants when you have to rely on your own resources from a position of relative anonymity. The first case study is Joel Benjamin, a chap I met when I was on the features jury at AnimaFest Zagreb last year, whose film Where It Floods kind of occupies a limbo between short and feature films at just under 50 minutes long. Now, it's a pretty tricky sell off the bat, as festivals rarely tend to favour medium or TV special-length films. And to be honest, for a short film category, you're already pushing it if your film is half or even a third of that length. 
I guess I usually describe it as a featurette, which is not that helpful because people don't know what a featurette is. At some point, I looked up the definitions according to maybe the Academy, and I think a featurette is anything between 45 and 70 minutes or something, and where it floods is 46. <laughs> but yeah, it's screened as a short, uh, and it's screened at a feature, as a feature a few different times. I didn't mean to make it that length. It's actually part one of two parts. So there potentially could be another 45-minute section of that film that would make it more of a full feature. Uh, it just took me eight years to do, and so I needed to, I needed to release it. <laughs> Nevertheless, when regarded as a long, short film, it's performed quite well, winning awards at the Sydney World Film Festival and Midwest Independent Film Festival. The context I saw it in was among the Zagreb Features selection, so it was being evaluated alongside a mix of theatrically released endeavours like The Red Turtle and My Life as a Courgette, as well as several films on the more indie end of the spectrum, like The Girl Without Hands or the notoriously banned from Annecy film Have a Nice Day. Jill's film tells the story of a family whose lives have been devastated by a natural disaster that has left their home, indeed their entire hometown, flooded and ravaged. Father Calvin is perhaps stubbornly resolute in wanting to stay put, while the rest of the community has moved on. Growing up in Iowa, in the early 90s, there was a, a, a pretty bad flood, and I have really strong images of my dad canoeing down the road because it was completely underwater and I have I've had this image in my head for a long time and I mean I love lived growing up where I did it's all farmland and and uh, whether you agree with the politics or not the people are generally pretty nice and very neighborly and I like the way that the barns that are kind of abandoned feel and and there's this the beauty in this landscape that sort of that that has things that were man-made but are falling apart and I love the way that that looks. And I like, I really think that it has a lot of potential for beauty. Um, and then uh, Hurricane Katrina, a, a big hurricane that hit the, the uh, southeast US, uh, happened. And that kind of like solidified what I wanted to do. Um, the, the news for weeks was just of the houses completely underwater and the way that people were struggling and again these images of people in boats going down the road because the cars were completely underwater so it was sort of a a combination of growing up in midwest in iowa and thinking about farmland and thinking about that flood and then i wanted there to be like a hint of kind of not necessarily global warming but some sort of global disaster uh, and then have it be about the people and the people, I think, definitely, they complement that backdrop very well. That's that particular kind of dynamic of, especially the one who's kind of lost her mind a bit. And it's, it's a, a, a quite interesting story. Was that entirely a sort of fictional thing? or? Yeah. At some point, it was kind of loosely based off of a fairy tale. And that woman was, in the fairy tale, this woman who lived in a well and the main character found this woman and fell in love with her and went down into the well and there was this other world there uh, and I, I didn't really keep the fairy tale very long because characters in fairy tales don't tend to be that interesting or have a lot of depth they're just more about the fable or the the sort of the moral of it but that idea of that woman who lived in the well that wasn't completely 
I don't know, saying we're all there, kind of stuck with it. Joel's background bears some similarities to my own. We both began in motion graphics and were eventually lured over to animation by its potential for story and character work when it came to our master's degrees. I'm from Northwest Iowa, which is right in the middle of the country. Uh, it's all farmland. My neighbors are all farmers. My dad is not, he's a painting contractor, but we raise buffalo. And there's no, there's nothing around uh, in the arts or film or anything. And so I went to school to be a music major because that's what everyone in my family did. And I quickly realized that actually I loved animation and there was no animation program at that school. So then I came to Chicago to go to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is, um, I think it's pretty consistently rated top 10 in the country for animation schools. And met Chris Sullivan there, who definitely you should talk to him if you aren't already planning on it. And he was working on his first feature, Consuming Experience. And I think at that time, he'd maybe already been working on it for six or seven years. And so all of my classmates and colleagues said, oh, well, that's normal. You just work on a feature animation by yourself for like a decade. <laughs> and then graduated and realized that that's not a very common or uh, profitable thing to do. So I freelanced as a motion graphic designer for probably i mean i'm still doing that but for probably six or eight years before i started teaching animation um, and now i teach at depaul university and school at art institute of chicago both uh, animation and realized that there's a great community of animators that are making their own work without money and decided to go back and get my master's in animation and made quite a few short films and then War of Floods and here I am. Having developed an efficient workflow and grasp of software processes from his freelance experience, Joel's shorter films were entirely self-funded at less than $1,000 each. Save for hiring actors, composers and sound designers, the bulk of the labor would be taken on by Joel himself. For the longer form Where It Floods, it required a little more assistance to get going. For Where It Floods, I, I did get a grant through DePaul University, which, which I think maybe was $5,000. And that was, that was it. <laughs> um, some money out of pocket. So probably total, it was $8,000 US to make that. Now, were you teaching there at the time? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've been teaching bo both schools for eight or nine years, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does this grant then, is it a regular thing that people can apply for? So the DePaul at least has a couple of different grants. This was a master's grant. So the, I was getting my master's degrees at the time. This was, um, it's a film that I bet I'd started before I went back to get my master's degree, but I finished it as my thesis. And so this grant was actually a thesis production grant. Mostly they give it to live action people, uh, but a couple of animators have applied for it and gotten it. Uh, the other way to get grants through DePaul is some, as if you are a teacher there, you can get what's called a blue light grant to make a film where they give, I'm not actually even sure how much money, maybe $5,000, um, plus they let you run a class and have students help you to produce the film. So basically on the school's money, but the students are also paying tuition to take this class. So the filmmaker benefits in that they get a little bit of money and they get student labor to work on it but that through DePaul those are the only grants I know for actually making films I'm not sure that the Art Institute has anything like that at all 
The sobering notion that the film's production spanned eight years is mollified somewhat, knowing that, as is often the case with indie films, it wasn't Joel's nine-to-five. As someone who's recently made a five-minute short in fits and starts over a period of a year and a half, it actually seems quite proportionate. While Joel never actively turned down any freelance work that came his way, he made a point of giving Where It Floods regular attention and taking advantage of any lulls between commissions to give it a more dedicated boost toward the finish line. I mean, I think that I realized at some point it's just something that I had to do. I just, I want so badly to work on films and make films. And that, I mean, without that drive, it wouldn't have happened. But yeah, I would work nights and weekends when I could. If I had a big commission, I just had to set it aside for sometimes, you know, five or six months at a time. And then when I went back to get my master's, I was, it was a good excuse to basically spend the last year of my master's degree working on it six days a week for, you know, almost a whole year to, to, to finish it. So with the grant in place, what was your sort of approach as far as putting together like people to help out on it? Because I'm assuming then, again, with the, the eight-year production, that people wouldn't be working on it for that whole period of time. No, definitely not. I mostly gave the money to one animator that I knew really well uh, through school. And he's a colleague of mine that also freelances and, and knows the technique and the software really well. And so I basically said, can I give you, I think I gave him $4,000 and said, how many weeks of work can I get out of this much money? And he just came and we both worked in, a, in my studio and just tried to uh, get as much done as possible while I still had money to pay him. Before that, I had a couple of interns through the Art Institute. They were unpaid interns that mostly just volunteered to come and work for me that were able to get some shots done. That didn't end up being completely worth it because I spent a lot of time training them and then directing them for each shot that they were working on and kind of correcting things that I wasn't happy with. But I still did get some shots out of that for, again, I wasn't paying them, so it was basically for free. Otherwise, that was it. Interns and then one guy that I was able to hire for, I think, about four grand for a few weeks. A major recurring theme when it comes to the case studies in this podcast is the economic, budget-friendly approach to the film's visuals. This compromise is also the case with the likes of Plimpton, Bauman, and Paley, as well as Hertzfeld and many others. With economic concession, however, can sometimes come ingenuity. Certainly the look of where it floods is unique. It makes use of After Effects as 3D capabilities and atypically rendered largely flat assets to create a strange 2.5D world evocative of stylized video game cinematics. Probably one of my favorite films is Fantastic Planet, uh, which is a it's it's a, a lot of that sort of style, cut out puppet style. With I mean, they do a lot more frame by frame drawing replacements, but it was something that I felt comfortable with doing because I was very familiar with After Effects through freelance, um, and and I don't feel like I'm a great draftsman. So drawing an animation frame by frame would take me a, a really long time. Uh, and so this just seemed like a way for me to to make a film that was about mood and atmosphere and story. And not everybody agrees with the with the style decision, but where I could kind of like let the style be what it is. It's a 2D computer cutout animation, which isn't 
it's not I mean it wouldn't be my first choice if I could if I had the capacity to do any style but I could work I could do it <laughs> that's really what it came down to so I had done a really terrible terrible test film before I started this and kind of started to develop the style I like all, all the characters and environments are drawn on paper with pencil and then scanned in and I like that look a lot so this let me kind of have this panterly look and where everything's got a kind of uh, soft pencil shading to it but still be able to actually animate digitally so yeah I'd known that I was going to do something like this because it was something that I could do and I knew that I could have a look that I was pretty happy with in terms of atmosphere and mood I like that the, all the characters are sort of awkward I'm partly partly it's intentional and partly it's just because my draftsmanship is questionable but I kept I just kind of went with the fact that 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 character that is losing her mind and and even the main characters they're, they're a little bit awkward in the way that they move and the way that they look and so uh, that was sort of a, an art a happy artifact of the limits of my talents and then the technique once the film was done, there came the question of how it might be distributed, one that's rarely cut and dry and hotly debated within both online forums and festivals themselves. Ultimately, for Joel, there was no painstaking marketing or distribution strategy he adhered to. The primary concern was to get it seen at festivals and simply take it from there. I did all that myself. I'll say when I started seriously making films, I didn't know there... I mean, I, I know that commercial feature films have uh, people that promote it. <laughs> but for an independent, I didn't really know that there was another option. So I just sent it to film festivals and that was about it. Um, and now it's a lot easier now with Film Freeway and with Autobox, it's, it's gotten better and there's ton, uh, Fast Home. Uh, it's so easy to promote your film to festivals at least that uh, if you can, you know, afford any um, submission fees, then it's not really, that part of it isn't really an issue. As far as promoting it otherwise, I don't have money. I, I mean, that's, I have to send it to Fest or put it online, and that's, that's kind of it. So is that the ultimate, like, plan down the line is uh, an online release? Yeah, I just have to decide if I want to make a big deal out of it <laughs> or just, like, put it up. Uh, there's I mean, some people like like you or some people that I met at Fest or uh, there's a radio show that did an interview when it premiered here that I could contact and say like, hey, would you mind putting a link out? Or I could just put it up. <laughs> this, I'm just not going to make, I mean, even if, even if I charged a rental or like a purchase fee, I'm not really going to make any money back. So I just have to decide if I, if I care to try and make even like a little bit of a couple dollars. Uh, I mean, it's not a known film. It's not uh, a film that has tons of accolades. It's a, it's a weird length, strangely animated featurette that like 12 people have heard of. So I might just put it up. And that's okay. I'm not, I don't feel bad about it. I mean, it's, I didn't make it thinking that I was going to make any money. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's probably just going to go up online. Where It Floods is now available to rent or buy via Vimeo On Demand, an increasingly popular avenue for independent filmmakers. Joel, meanwhile, has returned to shorts with his latest film, Relax, It's Probably Just a Parasite, presently doing the rounds. 
Next up, we're hearing from Nicholas Defina, whose film Le Serdman was made possible mainly from Nicholas's discovery of the Tomb Boom workflow and the ease with which he was able to self-teach, bolstered also by a two-week intensive training course. As for the premise, he sums it up best himself. I guess the uh, kind of quick elevator pitch is that it's a, a guy, Peter Le Serban, he goes through a messy breakup with his girlfriend, and she takes everything she owns from the house, which is pretty much everything, save for a few pieces of furniture and an old Halloween costume, which is a giant lizard suit. So he dons a lizard suit, goes out to drink at a bar, gets real, uh, real blackout drunk, and then the next day he wakes up kind of through some different Freaky Friday elements and just uh, his own alcoholism, believing that he's now turning into part lizard. And then he goes in to be kind of a pseudo-superhero film from there. Although notably as lo-fi as lo-fi gets when it comes to its visual style, the spirit of the film bears some on-paper similarities to the aforementioned Chuck Steele, notably in its celebration of humor and tropes of alpha male machismo movies and genre films in general that run the risk in today's climate of Poe's law, when the lines between sincerity and satire might be blurry to a general audience. In both instances, the fact that there are stretches of decent writing and engaging story structure, as well as moments of more light-hearted silliness, helps to counterbalance this, and once acclimated to the overall tone of the film, it's not too hard to get on board. Clearly, it isn't a film that seems too concerned with appealing to the largest audience possible, and also, as with Chuck Steele, its origins go back a fair few years. The idea had been kind of kicking around back since like 2009, and I didn't get to start working on it until about 2012, because I did I was working on some other live act, live action uh, feature before then. But back then, 2009, I thought that uh, animation was just going to be something kind of out of my realm of capability. So I was also trying to figure out a way if I could do this as a live action thing, but I think that would have been about 20 times worse trying to do everything if I wanted to do it uh, kind of a straight map of how I did it in the animated form of it. Roughly then how long would it have taken to make, like from that sort of original idea to it actually being like, you know, locked down and done? I call it uh, five years from this exactly from 20 uh, January, 2012 to January, 2017. Mm. And that, that includes the full process of writing it, then going to kind of learn the program itself and then storyboarding character rigging, all the backgrounds and then actually animating the actual animating of it all probably only took about a year so all the prep work that was pretty killer as i'm sure you know Hmm. well a year is 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 a pretty impressive sort of turnaround time for that sort of level of you know footage that has to be produced do you think that's because so much work went into the prep like getting all the the materials ready to go yeah i think when um when i went to kind of go to that intensive course uh as i told you the guy the one of the instructors i had kind of really stressed me the harder you work during preparation the easier everything's going to be towards the end so when i did the storyboarding everything was as tight as i could put it and pretty much exactly to how um how one of the motions to be in the backgrounds themselves uh those are pretty much almost finished uh like copies of what it would look like when i actually animated it all so all the prep work, was, prep work was there and i just pretty much dedicated nothing but all my free time towards it so it was very much uh, living with uh, with some rats and cockroaches in a pretty squalid, squalid apartment there and uh, getting all that work done that last year. 
The importance of prep for the film's content is one thing, but in order to actually devote the time necessary to put it together without sacrificing any semblance of a normal life also required a great deal of forethought and preparation. Not feeling personally comfortable with the crowdfunding route in the years leading up to the final stretch of production, Nicholas made a point of saving a percentage of his earnings from his day job so that he'd be solvent enough to make working on the animation his full-time commitment for a solid two years, as long as his outgoings were stringent. Paring down the original script as he went along also proved vital. I think the very first cut of it probably would have been something like maybe close to 110 minutes, but as I was starting to animate things and see it actually play out, I'm like, well, this doesn't need to be here. I can tighten this up a little bit. So by the end, I kind of cut off a good 20, 25 minutes of things. And I think that's obviously for the better because, you know, especially if you're going with a little bit lower fi animation, you kind of have to, I, don't know, I, I feel like you have to really kind of keep things moving a little bit more to keep people engaged and just, I don't know, feel like animation Unless it's a Pixar movie, it's hard to kind of carry the film past 90 minutes. But uh, when it stayed fairly true to the um, the idea of the script, everything else, it was just cutting things down and it wasn't much uh, altering of any, how anything went. So, yes, it was the original just kind of cut up at certain points. Did you get any sort of feedback from other people as far as what to kind of cut and what to keep? Yeah, oh, yeah. Before, yeah. So I had... Uh, about like five different people. Uh, my brother who was drawing on it, my friend who did some of the, a lot of the key people that were in there, uh, like the main voice actor, just sending it out to them and seeing kind of what they thought and how they felt um, it was moving. And I was doing that back with the, um, when I made the animatic for it as well. So that kind of helped back then to get a good feel of how it's moving. So people would be like, yeah, you could probably cut this part out, cut this part out. And then I think the main part was my older brother, though. He kind of, uh, thankful to have him because he, I think he genuinely watched it a good four or five times from all the different cuts to try to help me uh, get a fresh pair of eyes on it, which is you know very hard when you're standing that close to the painting. By taking on pretty much every element of production and post-production, save for music and character designs contributed by his brother, actors from his theater group making up the voice cast, and some graphical comic art sequences taken on by a friend. Nicholas would come to learn there were more than strictly financial concerns to consider. In terms of the kind of emotional toll or mental toll, that absolutely did uh, kind of affect me towards the end there. And I think it's still kind of something I'm pulling out of and kind of not without much exaggeration, still kind of reacclimating myself to kind of socializing with people again, just mm -hmm. because it came a very, uh, even like more locked thing. I was actually living uh, in a garden apartment that barely got any sunlight as well. So I would get out every once in a while, but uh, it was pretty, pretty full dedication to that. So luckily my wife is trying to pull me out of the head as well. Lucerdman is available to rent or buy on Vimeo as well as Amazon. In fact, if you have Amazon Prime, you can check it out for free. Another director who's taken this particular plunge is Dan Ekus, a chap I talked to last year for his own podcast that also focuses on independent animation. A self-described professional visual storyteller, Dan came off a four-year course at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania with a desire to create something challenging and ambitious, this ultimately taking the form of his 65-minute mini-epic Grey Island, a near-wordless sci-fi odyssey. Dan explains why he eschewed the notion of making shorts the generally more common impulse for recent graduates building up their portfolio. I think a big reason, Ben, was I didn't think shorts would 
helped me stand out online. I saw people on Cartoon Brew and a lot of the people featured on there were doing their own features and longer form projects. So I really saw it as a way to begin to build a name for myself and even though I didn't I didn't really want it to be the only thing I was ever known for, but I figured this would be a good way to get my foot in the door and, and uh, begin to build a bit of a reputation. So that was a big reason. The other main thing was I saw the potential of feature-length animation from an artistic standpoint as there's still a lot to explore. It's a, it's a wellspring. There's so much you can do. And in the United States, I feel that we're pretty behind artistically in the world of animation, even though there's so many incredible series and films that, that do come out of this country. I, um, I really feel that Europe, Japan are kind of ahead of the curve. And there were directors that I was, I was studying, like Satoshi Kon from Japan or... Marcel Jankovic from Europe and I really saw them doing feature-length animation that was on par with the like art house cinema that you would see in live action you know so that was that was a big motivator for me and it really was cemented when I, I began looking at people like Ralph Bakshi or Jim Lujan or M. Dot Strange and I noticed there's a lot of people who have made their own features, surprisingly. So it was all the more reason for me to say, I really have no excuse for whatever reason. This My heart is calling me to do this. So I saw it as sort of like an independent movement in the way that <laughs> this might be a bit pretentious or full of myself, but it was in the way that the French New Wave was a, a movement in film. I saw this underground movement of animators making features and really doing things that you wouldn't see in a mainstream animated film. Making a contribution to this movement required a bit of self-teaching, with Dan grabbing up as many books on filmmaking practice as he could get his hands on. This was something he cites as one of the main positives of the experience, developing an understanding of the workflow and realities of what to expect and the best ways to make his film readable to an audience. This piecemeal method of learning as he went resulted in a few economic concessions, bypassing the storyboard stage, for example, going straight to an animatic on which the animation was built. Like with our previous filmmakers, the bulk of production was on Dan's shoulders, it being his passion project, though in hindsight, a few helping hands would have been beneficial. M. Dot Strange, I believe he did a feature film, and he did the soundtrack. He scored it as well and animated it, directed it, wrote it. And that was just insane for me, and I just don't have the musical talent that someone like that would have. So, yeah, hire people, pay them, like, actual industry rates, you know, if you can. I did, I, I had to save up for many months, and if I were to do it again, the thing that I would do differently is I would definitely hire people to help with the animation, if I could, but... I would actually crowdfund as I went along, you know, something like Patreon or because um, the funding was the biggest plug. That's what took the longest was raising the money to pay people. And I had to work a day job to keep my lights on and everything. So, but yeah, definitely have a crew and have people who are better at things 
than you are. So I'm not, my skill is not music. I'm okay at sound design, but I'm not a professional. So I hired a professional and that'll just make your film a lot better. So you were working during this time then, two years, but two years of your free time, essentially, rather than like actually giving up work for that time. Yeah. And I was freelancing, doing animation for clients. So I did have flexibility in my schedule. But another mistake I made there was I would work on the film during office hours. So like from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., that's when I was supposed to be working for my clients. And I would say, well, I'm my own boss, basically. I can set my own hours and I'd work on Gray Island. And then I'd fall behind on client projects, which led to me having money problems, which led to me struggling to come up with the funds for the film. So (laughs) you got to stick to like a regular schedule. That's the best thing with what I'm doing with my current projects is just I work a couple hours in the morning before I start the day. And a big reason is uh, the concept of willpower. You only have so much creative and mental energy to spend every single day. Science has kind of proven this. And like even things like, oh, what am I going to eat for lunch? What am I going to make for breakfast? What am I going to wear today? You're spending creative energy and a lot of people wait till the evenings when they get home or they say, oh, I'm a night owl. I'm not a morning person. So they wait till after work when they have no energy. And as a result, they don't get as much done. So if you can work in the morning on the weekends, that's good. The juggling of time, money and other resources from going it alone presented its own set of challenges, especially as Dan had yet to embrace the benefits of social media to the extent he does now. But within the production itself, there were other issues Dan found himself faced with. An initial plan was to create the four main chapters of the film as chronologically produced standalone shorts, an approach that worked for, say, Don Hertzfeld, whose hour-long film It's Such a Beautiful Day is essentially three of his previous films edited together. Ultimately, Dan's scattershot fits-and-starts approach to the production ruled animating it in chronological segments out as an option. He also attempted several months' worth of running on minimal sleep, averaging four hours a night to be more productive, but ended up having the opposite effect when his health took a dive as a result. As with Lacerdman and Where It Floods, the achievability of such a long-form endeavour hinged on working out a visual style that could clearly communicate his story while being as time and cost-effective as possible. I really studied a lot of animated television series, particularly like Japanese ones, because they're very streamlined, but they're still effective in the storytelling. I studied a lot of like motion comics, actually, on the internet. You'll see they'll just, there will be shots where it's just a pan of a camera, a zoom. There's all kinds of little, where you don't actually need a ton of animation. So that was definitely a factor, yeah. And the style of the film was very simplistic you know but I also I wanted to really make an art house film and the the film is really ugly it's really gritty you know and I, I wanted it like that and there's a constant flicker on the screen for the whole film that adds life to the image there's tons you'll see tons of indie animators do the same thing that I think they call it a boil where the lines will sort of move even though the character isn't moving. So there's all kinds of little things you can do like that and really just study independent productions or study uh, lower budget animation productions 
and you glean so many techniques on how you can kind of cut corners. Dan's approach to distribution stands out as having largely eschewed the festival circuit, instead opting to go straight to selling it online as a digital download. Without a hugely established online audience chomping at the bit, as the Hertzfelds and Plimptons of the industry might, the inspiration for his marketing strategy came from an unusual place. I studied how, this is really random, but how non-fiction book authors do book launches. They're doing a lot of revolutionary things in terms of being independent creators and getting money and support for their work on the internet. One of the things we'll do is just have like a one-page website called a landing page, and they'll use email marketing to begin to build an email newsletter, which is essential. I talk about on my, my YouTube channel a lot. Build an email newsletter through uh, social media, and once people are on your email newsletter, then send them a link to buy from you and provide like valuable content for them. So, for instance, like I put out free content on a platform like Instagram, and then I'll say at the end of the content, hey, if you enjoy content like this, you can get more on my email newsletter. And it's usually things which, depending on who your audience is, my audience is like visual storytellers like us, there are other artists, and I'll just give like insights and inspiration for them based on what I'm learning in my journey and overcoming the struggles I face. I say, hey, if you're having this problem too, here's how you can get past it. So I'll say, hey, there's a link in my social media bio, click that and sign up for my newsletter. Then they're on the newsletter and they start getting emails from me with the same sort of content, usually positive, inspirational things. And at the end of every email, it's like, hey, if you're interested in my project, you can purchase it here. So that, that was really the approach with Gray Island. I just sold it as a digital download, which I don't know if that's the best route. I don't know. You might be better off. Depending on how like big of a production it is, I didn't really think it would have enough mass appeal to for me to like pitch it to Netflix or some streaming company because it's super indie. It's super avant-garde. I wanted to make something that was more like you'd hang it on a wall in a museum. And it, it's very modern, so I really didn't see it as having a lot of commercial appeal. But a lot of people bought it, and surprisingly, people still buy it from me, even though I'm doing radically different work now. Um, I have it as a digital download in my online store. So that's, it's, it's an option for people to at least look at. Gray Island is available to buy as a digital download via Dan's website at danekis.com slash gray island. So when all's said and done, the main question that remains when it comes to committing to an indie animated feature is fairly obvious. Is it worth it? The positive response to Joel Benjamin's Where It Floods validated the time spent on it as a creative endeavor, and while it didn't reap any major financial rewards, Joel's expectations were always realistic from the get-go. These types of passion projects are more about the joy of the making and getting the end result out in front of a receptive crowd. You can't feel entitled to more, because that doesn't do any good. As a creative exercise, and as you know, something that's a part of your filmography, um, do you feel it was worth it, Like, as far as what you've been able to do since and what you learned doing it? I can't say anything other than yes, 
I don't mind the time, like eight or nine years working on it. It's not like I stopped my life. Like you said, there's ebb and flow with working on it. I mean, I got married and I had a kid and I made some shorts in the meantime. And uh, so the time is kind of irrelevant. I learned a lot about storytelling and about long-term filmmaking and about animating. And yeah, I, it was worth it. Nicholas Tofina's reflections on Le Serdman boil down to two main concepts, managing expectations of where your work might land and being sure to pace yourself so as to not burn out. It was a little bit hard because everything I was doing was um, kind of learning and doing at the same time. So to know what you're getting into when you're doing it in terms of, uh, like I said, it's not going to be the thing that might uh, kind of be a lifeline out of any current job situation or it uh, might not hit as hard as you think. Or on one hand, it's great to be, oh, look, I'm, I'm up against or I'm with this grouping of great films, but I'm also uh, going to get smashed in this because I don't have any um, notable talent or I don't have any name attached to it. And that's the kind of the thing that I seem to be finding out from a lot of a lot of the festivals. Like, yeah, we, we liked the film. It was good. It just uh, didn't seem to fit our, our programming. Uh, it was either one of these two things. They said it was kind of uh, a little bit dark at certain times. They didn't know if that would play well with some of the crowds. And it didn't have any sort of uh, notable name to kind of attach to it. I think no matter what you're going to do, you're going to wish you had done something better or tighter. I think I would have tried to space, maybe space it out a little bit longer. It felt very uh, oppressing at certain points and just kind of a monkey on my back that was never kind of gotten rid of. And it's just now kind of starting to ease off my back and I'm starting to actually feel like uh, I can enjoy going out and not... Because if I ever went out during the process, the nagging thing in the back of my head was you should be at home doing work on this film. So I wasn't either... I was out, but not even enjoying myself. So it was either stay in and not enjoy myself or be out and not enjoy myself. So maybe space it out, spread the work if you can. And if you're okay with it, definitely kickstart. Those would be the only uh, only three uh, pitfalls or bits of advice to do it outside of definitely do it, though. You'll, you won't regret doing it. You regret not doing it. As for Dan Ekis, the project served an important function as far as the direction his creative energies are best spent in future. It was one of the best things I ever did. If you feel compelled or called to do something, like do it now. Like don't wait. Finishing something ambitious like this was great because after that you feel like, oh, I climbed that mountain. I can climb. I can do anything now. So um, I've actually switched over to doing comics. That was another big lesson I learned doing Grey Island was uh, I don't want to just be like a film auteur. I want to tell stories visually. And that's really where my passion is, even though Grey Island is very experimental and I wanted it to be that way. I wasn't really concerned with narrative as much. The script was pumped out pretty quick. But I learned I can just tell a story with comics by writing and drawing. I don't have to make it move. <laughs> And I don't have to hire a composer or a sound designer. But plans for my future, I do want to do... Like, I'm doing a graphic novel, Soul of the World, right now. And long term, I'd like to tell a bunch of stories with comics. And long term, look into getting investors to produce more animation. Because really, 
you got to ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing at every stage of your life. And for me, the reason I was animating was to tell a story. And I don't need to, like animation, making things move, that's not my real passion in life. As much as I did enjoy it and I loved, I loved doing it, I would, I'd be much happier focusing on the story or on art direction and then like hiring other artists to animate for me. <laughs> So that's my long-term plan is to just build a body of work, stories that people will enjoy, and then have more money to dump back into some animation projects. For the closing segment of this episode, we have an interview with producer Natasha Price from Engine House, a UK-based studio whose output includes animation, VFX, and VR projects, and they're about to embark on an independent animated feature of their own. The film, titled Back from the Dead Red, tells the little-known story of Haitian orphan-turned-pirate Jacot Delahaye. While the production is only just beginning, the story behind it's already fascinating for several reasons. Firstly, that as a studio, the team have put in the time and legwork of conventional pitching and production research that most independent artists bypass or simply aren't aware of. In the case of Engine House, they've ultimately concluded that any avenues that approximate convention come with concessions they're not prepared to make. As such, they're resolved to do it all in-house without major backing or co-production to help them on their way, save for the support of Singular DTV, an organization that describes themselves as a blockchain entertainment studio, empowering artists with applications to manage and create projects from development to distribution. We'll learn more about what that means and what its potential for independent artists in the future might be presently. So without further ado, here is Natasha Price on Engine House's in-progress indie feature, Back from the Dead Red. So is it primarily focused on this project or do you guys have other irons in the fire? Basically, it all started off as a as a service-based studio. Uh, so we worked with clients kind of across advertising. Uh, we did quite a lot of online and social media stuff. And we started to kind of dabble in some VR 360s and things like that as well more recently. And then this was a kind of separate project where we felt like we really wanted to kind of run with our own creative ideas and kind of really own a project so that's kind of what this project was about but they the two sides of the business are now kind of running side by side so we've got the kind of the film team and then we've also got the kind of engine house service side team as well so we're still kind of trying to keep all the all the service stuff uh, going as well but just kind of try to develop that side to have a little bit more creative ownership as well and are you mainly focused on like producing Yes, there's three of us, uh, myself, Mike and Jason. And for probably about four years, it was just the three of us kind of running the studio. Um, it's only really since the film's kicked off. We're now, as of in a kind of couple of weeks, we're now going to be a team of eight. So we've grown quite a lot quite quickly. Um, but yeah, it was uh, yeah me, Mike and Jason who kind of uh, developed this idea from the start, um, kind of a, a couple of years ago, had this idea. Um, and so we're kind of a trio of producers. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting idea, as well as the story, but the idea behind how you're going about it. It actually started kind of way back doing a company vision exercise. Uh, so this is back when it was me, Mike and Jace, and uh, we had a, a business advisor who suggested that we try a sort of um, company vision, you know, where would you like to see yourself in, in five years' time? So we all kind of took half an hour and we decided to all kind of draw something 
and then we'd come back together and sort of present those ideas and then we could kind of talk about how we could you know look at getting there and uh, mine was um, a newspaper clipping that I'd kind of made uh, that was of us winning an award for a film that we'd made and maybe less relevant now than at the time but I had a quote from John Lasseter uh, in it who just said oh those guys and it was a sort of how do we make someone like that kind of notice who we are and what it is that we're doing and how do we get to a point where we you know we have a film and we have something some big creative project that we've sort of inspired all the way from from idea to kind of final product so that kind of is what sort of sets us on the on the quest it was then actually um it's the worst inspiration ever but it was actually a buzzfeed article that i think was called something like 10 badass women that need a film about them and at number one was lady called chocot de la Haye, who was a french haitian orphan who became a pirate uh, in the 17th century and just everything about that story was amazing we you know there's only probably five little scraps of information about her out there that you can sort of find but everything about her was super badass and we really liked her and it just seemed to be the perfect the perfect story that we wanted to tell really hmm. that particular sort of subject area then of strong women in history was that did that completely come from the article or was that something you guys were sort of looking for like inspiration for as a subject it wasn't necessarily i think as a company we want to kind of try and bring this a bit more balance you know within animation itself just in terms of um you know employees and things like that and i think that sort of helped with that but i don't think we were sort of purposely looking for you know a, a strong female lead we just wanted to make a really really cool story and we knew that hers would be a really cool story and i think the fact that she is you know this badass woman is just a bonus really so usually with um internally produced creative projects that studios take on they tend to sort of play it safe and go with short films mainly for the obvious reasons the sort of daunting commitment of a feature film and the sort of higher risk factor what was it about like a feature length project that I guess had the most appeal as something to um, throw yourselves into? Uh, we have had um, a very small experience of doing a short film. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to be part of the Random Acts First Acts programme that was funded by the Arts Council. And uh, it was a sort of a small bursary for people aged 16 to 25 to make a short three minute film. So we did make a short film for that. And I think that kind of gave us a, a taste of that sort of ownership of a project. But in terms of a feature, I think it was just, it was something that kind of seemed so ridiculous and this sort of a real dream to chase. And we knew that it, it wasn't going to be easy and that, you know, even to to be able to start the project was going to be was going to be tough and there were going to be lots of challenges ahead. But I think that's kind of what made us really hungry for it and want to do it even more. Mm-hmm. I saw that you kind of initially started out trying to secure conventional funding and sort of doing all the things that people tell you to do. Yeah. It was pretty clear that that wasn't really something that worked out. But I was I was kind of curious about that because the the big brick wall I think a lot of independents find is that they just don't know that there are avenues and opportunities and forums and festivals and markets out there. So they never even put together a pitch or apply. So this is an interesting case study. You guys actually did the thing 
and went over there and it turned out to be a bit of a bust. And I'd be kind of interested to hear about what wasn't a fit doing it that conventional way. Yeah, definitely. We sort of arrived in Bordeaux ready to pitch the idea and we were kind of feeling pretty pleased with ourselves when we rocked up. We thought, you know, we've got this really original project. It looks great and the character's really interesting and, you know, the subject matter's a bit different and we're kind of trying to stay away from that very kind of squeaky clean Pixar look that you kind of tend to see, you know, everywhere nowadays. And we're doing it on this kind of really small budget what isn't to like so we um went to this event kind of in these meetings and by the end of day one we sort of realized that actually it being something very different means that people are wary of it because it makes it harder to to market and it being a small budget might sound great to us but actually you know when the the majority of animations are made through co-productions if another company is looking to co-produce part of the film and you're saying we're doing it on this micro budget you know that that's an immediate put off for them. So it was things like that. Everything that we thought was great about it turned out to not really fit in these models. And so by the end of the uh, of the weekend, it was just Mike and I who, who'd gone. And we sort of started to feel like, oh, okay, well, maybe the next step is that we need to um, co-produce on someone else's film. Maybe we need to sort of a taste of the pipeline and that's how we can kind of learn and and that's how we'll get to the next step. And when we came back, uh, we spoke to Jason about it and he was like, well, no, no way. That's sort of, you know, compromising everything that we wanted to do. And, you know, we're proud of the things that make it different. Therefore, it shouldn't fit into sort of conventional ways of doing it. We're not making another, you know, another Pixar film. We're not trying to make another kids film. This is, you know, much more inspired by kind of... Uh, Asian animation and the way that they use it to tell stories. So we decided that, yeah, traditional route wasn't for us for this one. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I guess you're going through uh, a pretty new way of getting something like this off the ground. Certainly it's something that I have no frame of reference for nah. myself. <laughs> and I've, I've been sort of looking into it a little bit and, and, you know, anticipation of this conversation. I still have no idea. Um, <laughs> It certainly seems like just by virtue of it being kind of an unknown, that's kind of an appealing thing, I think. Is is it something that you guys found comparatively easy to get your heads around? It's hard to say because it is so new and it's so big. And I, you know, I do believe that it will change the way we do a lot of things. I think, you know, not that many people know really what it is and what it's going to be capable of, where it's going. But the thing that really drew us to it was that it can be used as a way to put the control back into the hands of both the creator and the audience. It's all about a kind of a demand and a belief in the in the projects and the artists and what people actually want to see. It's not all about the decisions of studios or, you know, producers or exec producers. It, it really puts the kind of the decision making back into the people who who create and consume the content. It's sort of almost a, what kind of YouTube did for a lot of people, I think, is that, you know, that was, it was all about the kind of supply and demand. And if you wanted to make YouTube videos, you didn't have to go and ask anyone. You just sort of put them out there. And if people wanted to watch them, they would. And I think it's a lot of that kind of system in that it's what people want will be, therefore be what's funded. And that's kind of how it sort of sustains itself. So hopefully it means, you know, a lot fairer, system for for creators in you know all across the board music film whatever it may be 
So are you working with a company that is kind of controlling this element of it? Yes, yeah, so our partnership is uh, with Singular DTV, okay. who um, are a, I think they're a Swiss company, but we are dealing with the guys in New York. And they are very much kind of leading the way of this sort of decentralized entertainment studio. They signed uh, the DJ Grammatic quite a long time ago, and he's now a crypto funded artist. So his latest album either was or is being funded through crypto. And they are also soon to be releasing a documentary uh, by Alex Winter, which I think explains kind of a bit more about blockchain and kind of what it is and what it's capable of. So I'm, I'm looking forward to when that comes out to, uh, to gen up a little bit. So yeah, that's the they're the uh, the company that we're working with, and they um, their kind of longer term plan is that uh, they have a platform uh, is currently called EtherVision, and that looks to be uh, released I think Q2 next year, and it's a kind of Netflix style platform, but that is how they also plan to distribute the content that they can raise money for through their mm-hmm. through their blockchain. So, are they able to provide actual sort of funding as far as getting the the film made initially or is that something that you kind of have to do yeah so they're funding us uh for this film and they have a system uh called take it which is a little bit like a crowdfunder kind of style thing so you sort of you know put your project out there you you know say what it is that you're looking to do and people can um sort of invest in your token whatever it may be called whatever you sort of want to categorize it as whether it's that single project or whether it's you as a maker as a whole and uh, you then use that funding to make your endeavor but then the people who've sort of backed you are then invested within you so whatever you kind of reap from that they they share in as well so in terms of what they're investing is that cash as we understand it or is it bitcoin or is it something else or yeah so we are uh we're funded in in cash um but yeah, they. I think uh, their main they sort of work with um, Ethereum. Is there? So. Okay. Yeah. Is that like a new? Bi- I sound so old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's up there with Bitcoin. It's one of the sort of the big, right. the big boys. So as you kind of plunge into this project, are you going to carry on taking on other work to sort of stay afloat, or are you actually able to make this a kind of priority? The kind of original discussions we had around it uh, when it looked like things were going to be going ahead with the film was, you know, what what do we do with this side of the business? And there was a a point where we thought, okay, well, we'll just sort of, you know, put that on pause for now. We'll focus on this. And then in two years time, we'll kind of pull our heads out of the sand and we can evaluate and see where we want to take it. Um, But actually, we we thought about it some more and realised that we, you know, we were kind of proud of the the business that we'd carved out and we... um, we felt like we kind of grown in quite a lot of industries. One um, particularly is that we uh, create a lot of book trailers and animated book covers. And we work with, you know, most of the biggest publishers in the UK and on lots of uh, big names and big titles. We've done a lot of work with, you know, Stephen King books and things like this. And we really love that. And we'd hate to kind of throw all that away. Um, and we've also been recently doing work with sort of planetariums and a lot more kind of immersive stuff. And we knew that, we would sort of end up regretting it if we if we didn't let that kind of business continue to grow and, and flourish. So we've brought 
new people in who are kind of now they're heading up that side of things and they're taking it in directions that they care about um, and sort of moving into industries that they're really passionate about and that sort of is allowed to then continue to evolve as we carry on working on the film, uh, which is really exciting because it's sort of almost all this cool stuff's happening almost without us even knowing mm. as things kind of carry on growing on that side as well. Yeah. At the end of the video, there are these sort of the mini montage of, I guess, sort of concept visuals or tests and stuff. Uh, is that kind of a clear representation of how you want the film to look? Close enough, yeah. Strangely, the um, the kind of the art style and the development of that has been one of the biggest uh, kind of challenges we've had on it so far. I think because it is something so different to what a lot of stuff out there looks like, and I think a lot of the the kind of systems are set up for a particular look or style. And I think also there is just an element of because we've never had this amount of creative control and we've never been allowed to really keep experimenting and finding that sort of perfect thing this has kind of allowed us to do that um it has meant we've had to do a little bit of schedule rejigging but we're pretty locked down on it now so i think yeah a lot of the visuals in that episode are, are pretty close hmm. what sort of uh, softwares are you guys using we are uh, generally max for the 3d stuff we're currently sort of fighting some people off cinema 4d and maya uh, but generally we're, we're 3d max Cool. So yeah, everyone else in this episode that I'm talking to, they've all done a film and it's kind of their reflections on it and what worked and what didn't and the degrees to which it was worth their time and what they do differently. Mm -hmm. So I, I think talking to you guys at the beginning of a project is quite good. It's that sort of different perspective. Do you have any kind of concerns going into it about how big a project it is and the commitment or, or are you just plunging in? I think it's sort of 50-50 between the absolute terror and yeah. And I think especially because of the way that blockchain is trying to kind of hand back to the creators where we're aware that we, you know, we are almost a kind of a test of that and a, a proof of that. We really want to, to prove that giving that power back to, to creative people and letting them kind of run with ideas is important and is what we should be doing. So we are kind of feeling a bit of pressure on our shoulders in that kind of regard i mean as well as you know at the end of the day just wanting to make a really really cool film i think we're definitely going into it with some naivety because well you know none of us have ever done kind of anything like this really this is that kind of first step into something completely new but i think our kind of our motto and our sort of way of going about things is there'll be a way and we'll figure it out and we like to problem solve and kind of get through these challenges so we're pretty confident still Thank you to Natasha Price, and you can see the work of Engine House, including Back from the Dead Red, at engine-house.co.uk. You can also check out the film's Facebook page at facebook.com slash bftdr. And many thanks to all the other filmmakers for their involvement in this episode, and you can check them all out online. For more on Joel Benjamin and Where It Floods, you can visit electricbeard.com. Nicholas Defina is on Twitter at Nicholas Defina, and the website for Lesserdman is lesserdman.com. That's spelled L-E-S-E-U-R-D-M-I-N. And you can see the work of Dan Ekus, including his informational video series and newsletter info at danekus.com. I myself am on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Of course, the magazine is at Squiggly, also at Squiggly Animation on Instagram, and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. 
And as the clock is ticking on your seasonal purchases, you might want to consider getting a copy of the Squiggly Book Independent Animation, Developing, Producing and Distributing Your Animated Films for the Indie Animator in Your Life, or requesting it yourself, as the good folks at Taylor & Francis are having an end-of-year sale that sees it listed at 20% off through to the end of December. It's 25% off if you buy it with another book. Mm. Plus, it's free shipping, so head on over to crcpress.com and check it out. It's full of all sorts of wisdom and advice from the cream of the indie animation crop. And there's sure to be something in there to inspire you or any animation auteurs you might know. Well, until our paths cross again, happy holidays and happy independent animating. <laughs>